Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The population of the United States in 1861 was then, as it is now, approximately half male and half female. But if an alien had come to Earth in the year 2000 and learned about humanity solely by reading books about the American Civil War, they would never guess that. Outside of a few nurses, spies, and soldiers in disguise, the story of the war had been told as a largely male story written by male historians. In the 21st century, the ranks of Civil War historians are no longer a male preserve. Will the stories they write likewise evolve? That's one of the many questions we'll ask of archivist and historian Deanne Blanton, a founder and past president of the Society for Women and the Civil War, and co-author of They Fought Like Demons, Women Soldiers in the Civil War. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. But as always, not representing the university, not speaking for the university, and likewise, our guest tonight will not represent any institution or agency other than herself, as we always do here. Well, it's the first Wednesday of February, 2022. Still dealing with the pandemic here at East Carolina University. Students are self-reporting themselves out right and left, but enough of us are still going that we are continuing to hold classes face-to-face, and they've been going pretty well, all things considered. Uh, This semester I have the uh, opportunity to teach the Civil War History class, which is always a pleasure, and we have a particularly interesting and, and uh, alert group of students this semester. If anyone in History 3225 is listening, uh, you guys are doing great. Mention this in class tomorrow and win a prize of some kind. 
Of course, that's unlikely that will happen, not because the students don't listen to Civil War talk radio, but nobody listens live uh, uh, pretty much. Maybe 25 people might listen live in a given month, according to the reports that uh, that I see about the show. 60,000 hits will occur later in a given month uh, of people who click on the show afterwards. But as far as listening live, if you're with us now, you're part of a rare elite breed. The uh, students have been doing some interesting things in other classes. In my, uh, uh, I'm teaching an introductory course this semester, uh, introductory U.S. history, which I always enjoy because these students know nothing coming in. And uh, an advanced class in American military history, but many of the students there are ROTC people who are taking it as a requirement for their program to get commissioned. And they're not history uh, fans necessarily, not even military history, surprisingly. So it's not quite like a survey course audience, but they don't know a great deal. So in those classes, I have the students uh, write book reviews for which part of the assignment is that they have to choose the book themselves and they have to pick an academic history. And we talk on the show all the time about public history and popular history and academic history. And I'm trying to teach the students this lesson and that, that there are plenty of books that call themselves history, but they're written by people with no experience or training. Uh, so they have to go and, and f- to the library, uh, which also is a big step for a lot of them. They've never been to the library. And it's it's fascinating to, to hear their stories of frustration. They come back, say, well, all these books aren't actually written by historians, are they? No, no, in fact, they're not. Uh, but one of the goals that the, the exercise achieves is getting them to actually go into the library. There's a Starbucks in the library. They've all been there. Uh, they go to the first floor to study and hang out, but there are no books down there. And the number of students who come to me and say, you know, I've never been on the second floor of the library where the books are, or the third floor, ever before, it, it's kind of shocking, kind of depressing, but, uh, but encouraging to see how once they go there, they, they express a willingness to go back. It's something uh, one learns in, in the world of public history, the same is true of museums, uh, and I'm guessing of archives, we can ask our guests tonight, uh, that... People are intimidated, they're afraid to go if they've never been, they don't know how it works, what they're supposed to do, what they're supposed to wear, how they're supposed to act. But once you've been into a museum, and everyone listening to this show is is already in that class, I'm sure, then you're comfortable and you go back. It's it's trying to get people to go in for the first time that's a real challenge. And uh, same with getting college students into the library for the first time. So... Continuing to have some some success with that, and hopefully it'll it'll keep going. Tonight's non-paying, non-aware, don't know that they're a sponsor of the show is uh, not Hewlett Packard, makers of the inert uh, object on my desk that was once a printer, uh, but has died and has been replaced by another inert object that's on my other part of my desk that's not plugged in yet. It's amazing how the pandemic affects everything. I, my printer stopped working. They asked, I asked for a, a, a repair, uh, which turned out would cost more than buying a new one. So they end up, uh, the department had a spare up in the storage room on the third, uh, third floor of a different wing of the Brewster building. 
and we brought it down and set it up and I opened it and it turned out there was no starter cartridge in it because somebody had been in the office one day when the staff wasn't working here. They were working from home because of the pandemic and no one was there to open the storage room and get them a printer cartridge so they found the printer itself, the, 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 the uh, extra printer in its box, opened the box, took out what they thought was just a, another cartridge. But Hewlett-Packard, in their genius, makes computers that require the starter cartridge to start, and if you don't have it, it can never start. You can't buy a new one on any market. Maybe there's a black market. Some guy in the corner will sell you a Hewlett-Packard starter cartridge. But we couldn't find one. So the taxpayers have paid for this inert, uh, non-functioning, brand-new printer with no starter cartridge. It's it's very frustrating. Uh, by this time next week, I will have a working printer on my desk. I'm, I'm confident of that. And by this time next week, you'll know who's coming up next on the show. Uh, in fact, you'll know right now who's coming up next. Next week, it will be Jonathan White. He's been to the show before. He's got... Uh, a new book called A House Built by Slaves, African-American Visitors to the Lincoln White House. He's got another new book, To Address You as My Friend, African-Americans' Letters to Abraham Lincoln. And I also learned he's got a new edited work of letters. We won't necessarily get into this one as well, but it's letters of Harriet M. Buss uh, about her work among the freedmen. And it turns out in the two years ago, in 2020, he... Uh, edited along with Stuart Winger a book uh, uh, an ex parte Milligan reconsidered race and civil liberties uh, from Lincoln administration to the present uh, one of the questions I will have to ask Professor White is what kind of stimulants he must be using to produce so much work in such a short time we'll find that out next week and the following week uh, a new author Meg Grayling joins us uh, she has written her first book and it's called First Fallen it's a biography of Elmer Ellsworth you're listening to the show you know who Elmer Ellsworth was uh, but nobody has written about the first well known Union casualty of the Civil War uh, at least not for many years so we'll have her on shortly and look forward to that lots more coming up uh, Lori and Foote will be rejoining us uh, in a few weeks uh, with her new book and then we'll get to uh, the month of March and spring break will blessedly be upon us here at ECU and I'll, I'll be back after that we'll tell you more later uh, you can learn all about it from www.impedimentsofwar.org where Mark Gaffney shows who's going to be on the show next. You can buy the books there and uh, otherwise stay informed. That's where you would have found out that tonight's guest is Deanne Blanton. She is a founding member of the Society uh, uh, the Society of Women and the Civil War. Uh, she served as the first president of that organization. She also worked at NARA, the National Archives and Records Administration, for 31 years, specializing in 19th century military records and she's a co-author of uh, with Lauren Cook of a book called They Fought Like Demons, Women Soldiers in the American Civil War that book is approaching its 20th anniversary it's an influential and important book that we'll talk about a little bit tonight along with the society uh, I've said far too much let's talk to our guest uh, Ms. Blanton, are you there? I am here Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. 
Thank you. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here speaking with you tonight. How are you? I'm I'm doing well. Thank you for for asking. I'm uh, enjoying the opportunity to talk with you. I got uh, some email from the the Society for Women uh, and the Civil War. I don't know a few months ago, and they said, you know, you you should talk about our our society. And I said, well, that's a good idea. Who should I talk with? And they said, well, we know just who. Uh, and your name came up. And, of course, I recognized your name from, from the book. Uh, so I'm delighted that we're connected here and able to talk. Um, you've done all this work professionally around the topic of the Civil War. What what uh, Tell us a little bit about your, your the origin of your interest in, in Civil War history. Well, it, it, it evolved. Um, I grew up about half an hour from Williamsburg, Virginia. And so my first love was the Revolutionary War. And, you know, I spent my childhood visiting Williamsburg. Um, later in life, I had the chance to work there, which was a dream come true. And so, so truly, my first love was the Revolution. And when I was hired at the National Archives... I was assigned to what was then called the military reference branch and very quickly informed that, yes, I could specialize in the revolution, but I needed to broaden, broaden my horizons. And as, as far as research and quantity of records and public interest, People are still obviously fascinated by the Civil War. Uh, the majority of the people I served uh, in my career at the archives were there researching the Civil War. And so it became an area where I absolutely had to develop some expertise. And then I found that, for me, it was every bit as fascinating as the Revolutionary War. And and my other big historical interest was always uh, women's history. Mm-hmm. And, and I was pleasantly surprised to find that, at least in the archival records, women are not completely absent. And because because the, the 19th century U.S. Army, they were great record keepers. They just documented everything. They would document their own atrocities. They documented the civilians that they came into contact with. And so it was such a delight for me to find that by, by learning these records, by assisting others in using um, our national records relating to the Civil War, that there, there, were, there were stories and histories of women that could also be parsed out of those documents. And I was also very fortunate uh, to be mentored by the great Mike Music who was mm-hmm. um, the Civil War expert, and and he taught me so much about the records, and and that's how I developed professionally. 
Wow, that, that's a familiar name. Anyone who did research in the archives uh, in previous decades knows knows the name of Michael Music. The um, mm-hmm. it, it just as as a public historian, I have to ask to work at Williamsburg and then the National Archives. Those are two peak organizations in the world of public history. Did you train to become a public historian, or how how did your career develop that way? Well, I was. I mean, I always tell people, like, I was a history nerd from <laughs> from a very young age. You know, I was I was the kid who would rather go to Williamsburg than go to the beach. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was natural for me when I when I went to college to to major in in history. And and then I did my graduate work in American history. And. I always had a great affinity for museums, and I thought that's where my career would take me. But when I arrived in in Washington, um, you know, the archives was hiring, and they were hiring history majors. And I thought, well, okay, let's let's give this a go. And uh, turned out that. It was a perfect fit for me and and my temperament. And so I think that I may not have been thinking in terms of public history, but Mm -hmm. because of the things I was interested in, that's just where my career led me. And, um, and I was very, very fortunate to be able to make a career out of something that I just loved and was so very interested in pretty much my whole life. That, that is a great, uh, a great thing. I know surveys often show that history professors have very high job satisfaction because we get to do something that we, we love doing. Uh, and the same is true. Public mm-hmm. historians, maybe even more so, to work in museums or archives. Uh, I want to ask you about the Society for Women and the Civil War, but we're going to take a short break first. We'll come back and talk a bit more uh, with our guest, Deanne Blanton, uh, former president of the Society for Women and the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Deanne Blanton, founding member of the Society for Women and the Civil War, past president of the organization, and longtime archivist uh, with the National Archives in American uh, Civil War and 19th century military records, uh, as well as an author. So many things uh, that that I want to talk about tonight. Uh, The Society for Women and the Civil War what um, tell us about this organization? When when did what moved you to to, to help organize it, and when did that happen? Well, our history really starts. It was um, in 1995. Uh, Eileen Conklin, who was a licensed guide at Gettysburg, and and who I knew uh, professionally. She was incredibly frustrated that there were not many outlets for um, women's history of the Civil War and that the conferences one might attend, the battlefield tours, it's it's like women didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And she gathered a group of of us together and said, we should throw our own conference because the current state of, of conferences and, and civil war events just omit women. And so we should throw our own conference. And we all said, that's a great idea. And, and literally set about doing that. And so the first conference on women and the Civil War was held in 1997 at Hood College in Frederick, Maryland. And the response was overwhelming. We had, I mean, it took us two years to, to get that conference organized and get the word out and and do call for papers and all of those things. And... And the response was was amazing. We had so many people who were researchers, who were uh, park rangers, who were graduate students, who wanted a platform and an opportunity to present their research. And we had so many people who wanted to come. 
and we were we were very gratified. The first conference was an amazing success, and we looked at each other and said, "Well, we got to do this again." Mm. And 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 so we started having an annual conference. The society grew out of that conference to to maintain the momentum of the annual conference to start raising money uh, just to publicize it. And for, for many of our initial years, you know, we, we held our conferences at, at universities because they would host us. Mm-hmm. And what we wanted to do, what we wanted to accomplish was to start creating a network where people who were researching women in the Civil War who had this interest could connect with others in the community. And so we actually founded the society in 2002 as a membership organization. And that became, that became the way we really um, were able to keep this annual conference growing and, get the word out to more and more individuals who would have an interest in what we were doing. And, and so the society, we are a membership organization of mm-hmm. the membership dues are $25. And that basically is the money we use every year, mostly to see the next conference, but also we have expanded our activities. Uh, we are building a database which will eventually go public, and it's the National Registry of Women's Service in the mm. Civil War, where we are working to document the nurses, the spies, the soldiers, the relief workers, the sanitary commission workers, the Christian commission, all of these women who played both large and small parts in the war and who who need to be better known. Uh, we're hoping our registry will be able to do that. We have volunteers uh, working on that. We have a web mistress. And so we have branched out from the conference, but our goal is, is to recognize women's contribution to the great sectional conflict, to, to support people who are doing the research into this area of, of civil war history to, to, um, to sort of amplify, uh, those researchers and people with this interest. And so that's what we do. And our website is swcw.org. We also put out a monthly newsletter that goes out to about 900 people at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have a, you don't have to be a member to get our newsletter. And one of the, uh, one of the highlights of the monthly newsletter is a biography, our woman of the month. Mm-hmm. And, and we're just, we want people to know what we're doing. We want people to join us and we want people to understand that we are a resource uh, for the study and the dissemination of women's civil war history. So I wonder, it, it, 
the, the purposes that you're talking about, certainly uh, compiling a database of women who participate in various ways, that sounds extraordinarily useful and, and something that, that all kinds of researchers will benefit from. Is In some way, is it possible to say that the, the society's success has made the need for uh, not... not I guess what I'm thinking of is when you go to places like CWI, the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg, uh, or, or the Society of Civil War Historians uh, meetings nowadays, the it it looks a lot more like society at large, uh, as many women as men, uh, more people of color than than you would have seen 30 years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. Is the days when when your society was the only networking opportunity, uh, one hopes are past. Uh, do you see that kind of progress Absolutely. happening? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I have. I have seen that kind of progress, and it makes us very happy mm-hmm. because it, it's it's another way of reaching our goals. Like we don't believe we are in conflict with other organizations. Mm -hmm. We hope to be an asset to other organizations and, and you know, we, we've created partnerships with a variety of organizations uh, to assist. The ultimate goal, you know, we're, we're a nonprofit uh, the ultimate goal is to educate. And, I mean, I personally am overjoyed that I'm not the only woman military historian uh, that shows up at at events or conferences. That makes me very happy. Um, I, you know, I've reached the sort of stage in my life where... Where nothing makes and I, nothing makes me happier than mentoring <laughs> and 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 helping the next generation of historians mm-hmm. that are coming up and that have a perspective that's that is different from the perspective that I was brought up in, and so we're actually thrilled that people who speak at our conference will also be invited to speak at broader civil war conferences. And does, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 you, no, go ahead. No, I just wanted to say that it is a remarkable amount of progress we've seen in, in the last 20, 30 years. And, uh, this show has been going since 2004 and, uh, I find occasionally I will look at a, a, a record of who's been on, and in a given month there will be, uh, you know, three or four women historians, one or two men historians. Not by any intentional selection, but that's just the work that's coming out nowadays. Uh, I just I, I take what the publishers or the publicists or the authors send me, or what I find in the library, and that's how I invite people. And uh, Without making any conscious effort, uh, it's impossible not to have uh, large numbers of women historians in any Civil War gathering. The uh, 
You said something interesting about how, how things have evolved uh, and perspectives have evolved. Let me change gears momentarily and ask you about the, uh, the, the book that you are well known for. Uh, having co-written the uh, They Fought Like Demons, Women Soldiers in the American Civil War. This book is now, I guess it's the 20th anniversary year for the book, uh, and when I borrowed a copy from the university library, one thing that struck me as I was looking over it this past week was how many pages had been marked up, had been uh, uh, underlined and highlighted by generations of students uh, who, who are engaged with the book. It's not respectful of the taxpayer's property necessarily, but it shows they're engaged with the text. They're, uh, they're taking notes for a paper or something. They're they're reading it. They're getting into it. Uh, so this book has been well used, um, but it's it is twenty years old. Have has if you were to write the same book today, would you take the same approach? Oh, you know that's I've thought about that. I've I've thought about. I think if 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 we were researching it and writing it. Now, it would be a better book mm-hmm. simply because more materials would be more readily available. You know, when we were researching and writing this book, it, it, you know, we were still, you know, nothing really had been digitized and put online yet. Mm-hmm. And and so we were old school going through microfilm and digging in archives and doing cold inquiries to other archivists saying, have you ever found anything along these lines in your repository and mm-hmm. chasing leads? And then, of course, people in the Civil War community are so very kind and generous and... Mm-hmm. And and so many individuals who were aware of what we were trying to do, if they stumbled across something in their own research, you know, they'd send it to us. Um, and and I think we probably could have researched that book for another decade, and and kept finding things. But you know, as my daddy used to say, eventually you got to cut bait. Yeah. And 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 we felt that we had enough of a story that we could tell, and and we we understood that we that we were breaking some ground because if I may backtrack, the reason you know we ended up writing this book is I was basically writing the book that I wanted to read because when I first sort of came across women soldiers, I just I was fascinated. I was floored. I knew nothing about it. And I immediately went and tried to find what I could find. And I couldn't find anything. You know, there might be a mention in, um, in someone's memoir. There might mm-hmm. be one disparaging line in, in a general Civil War um, history. And, and so initially, I was researching women soldiers just for my own intellectual curiosity. And, and it just dawned on me one day, I was like, well, now I'm going to have to write a book because there isn't one. And what, what Lauren and I always hoped was that 
and we we were proud that our book was was the first, mm-hmm. but we always always hoped that it would not be the last. That that someone would come along and pick up this story where we left off because we knew that we had not found everything that needed to be found. And, and so I always, I look at the book as an, almost as an introductory text. Mm-hmm. And I, I've been really pleased, like uh, Shelby Harrell's book, Behind the Rifle, I think is a marvelous uh, new addition to the body of work on women soldiers. You know, she found things that Lauren and I hadn't found. She even corrected a couple mistakes that Lauren and I made, and and uh, and I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think I think you know if we were doing it now. I'm not sure we would take too much of a different approach because, you know, as, as, as good historians know, some of the suppositions that I went into when I was researching that were later proven not to be true. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I sort of, you know, our interpretation did change as, as we found more evidence. And that, that's what writing history is about. I, like, I didn't expect, like, one of our, one of our conclusions, which I know some, um, gender historians weren't happy with us about, but some of our conclusions were that these women in the ranks were, were more like their male compatriots than we would have guessed. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, we got some pushback about that. And we said, well, that's where the evidence took us. Mm-hmm. And if, um, you know, the, the women who were passing themselves off as men and, and serving in the armies and dying for their country, none of them were doing it as a political statement. They, Either we can look back on it and and see how their actions were so in violation of of Victorian norms of women's proper behavior. Mm-hmm. But the women themselves, the individual women who were doing these things, they were doing it for very personal reasons. And what they do reflect about the larger society in in which they lived is, is they underscore how hard it was for women to earn a living as women. You know, we, we found that women in especially working class women, impoverished women, immigrant women, they weren't just passing as men to go into the army. They were passing as men to get better jobs at the mill. That's um, you know there was absolutely and that was something to say the detail that the I did not know before reading this book. I'm sorry to interrupt. We're going to take a short break and come back and pick up our story. We're talking with Deanne Blanton, co-author of "They Fought Like Demons: Women Soldiers in the American Civil War," and past president of the Society for Women and the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Deanne Blanton, co-author of They Fought Like Demons, Women Soldiers in the American Civil War. Also, uh, she is the past president of the Society for Women and the Civil War. We've been talking about that organization. But uh, we were saying at the end of the last segment uh, about women who fought as fought in the Civil War, and they did so as men. They were not a, uh, accepted as a rule as, as openly fighting against women. This was not done, certainly, in the Civil War. Uh, Let me ask a a quick detail question. You cite uh, early in your book the traditional number Mary Livermore cited of uh, perhaps 400 women fought in disguise as men during the Civil War. Given the amount of information Mm -hmm. that's come out since, uh, I'm guessing you would revise that figure substantially upward today. Um. I think so. You know, I I could never figure out where Mary Livermore got that number from, mm-hmm. and and so it, we were trying to find people who didn't want to be found, right? And 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 that made it very tricky. And as as far as we were aware, very few women who served ever wrote things, um, you know, wrote about their experiences. So much of the documentation we found was other people telling their stories. And, and so the honest answer to how many women soldiers there were is I have no idea. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing I'm guessing, uh, I mean, some people say hundreds, if not thousands. And and the fact is, we just don't know. You know, I always use the example of, of, of women whose sole documentation of having served is being dead on a battlefield. 
was no identification. So how many women were dead on the battlefield and buried without that recognition of, of the fact that they were biologically female? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unless the, the grave diggers were really rifling that body, which is, I think, how we, we know about the women dead on the battlefield that we do know about. Mm-hmm. Or, or women who, who literally were never discovered as such, mm-hmm. went home, resumed a more traditional life, and never told anybody what they did. It's, it's you know, our... The exit documentation today and any any study of women who served as soldiers is so heavily skewed towards those who were found out or who self-reported. Um, so I, I just cannot give an honest answer. But knowing what we know about the whole underground of women passing as men for largely economic and and reasons of personal liberty because mm-hmm. being a man in in that time conferred so many you know privileges and mm-hmm. that it's just not really a knowable number and and to me I'm not sure that an exact number is really the point mm-hmm. it's that there was a cadre of women who did this remarkable thing and they did it in the face of a society that was wholly disapproving of them, of them taking this step. And, and just this society was really disapproving of, of, of any women at that time who did anything for their own personal liberty. You said um, something about how these were not, not political statements in the sense that uh, we would see them today, but I'm wondering if, if the vocabulary hasn't changed since 2002 when, when this book was written. Uh, the, the trans community today is, is far more visible and open than it was 20 years ago. Uh, women who, uh, you know, biological women who identify as men are 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 visible. Uh, you know, ha- there, there's a name. There, there's an identity that was not there mm-hmm. uh, uh, two decades back. Would that inform the way you would interpret the Civil War and the experience of women who who identified as men or fought as men? It, you know, I have I have given that a great deal of thought, and and one thing I think we would change if we were writing the book today mm-hmm. is our treatment of Albert Cashier. Hmm of the women that we were able to document and that have been documented since by other historians, Mm -hmm. most of those women at some point in their life, either by choice or coercion, went back to living as women. And, And most of the women soldiers you know, later did go on to have more traditional lives. And, and, a, and there were women, you know, probably a third of the women that we documented were at war with their husbands or their fiancés. 
So, but then there's Albert Cashier, and and Albert Cashier, who's just a fascinating individual. Albert Cashier was born and named in um, Ireland, and named Jenny Hodgers, assigned female at birth, and we know that. And at some point, we don't have an exact date, and we don't know the circumstances. Jenny Hodgers left Ireland. And the next time this individual shows up in a public record, um, it's Albert Cashier in Illinois in 1860. And that whole story of how Jenny left Ireland, became Albert, and ended up in Illinois is simply not known. And Albert Cashier served in the 95th Illinois Infantry, was a good soldier by all accounts. Uh, There's a a very large pension file for Cashier. There's a military service record. But after the war, Albert Cashier continued to live as a man and lived as a man virtually for the rest of of his life. Mm Mm-hmm. And was and was not discovered to be biologically female until he was in his sixties. At the time that we were researching the book, and Albert Cashier is incredibly well documented because of that pension file, which, by the way, the National Archives has digitized and put online, so anyone can see it now. Mm-hmm. Um, we at the time. We viewed Albert Cashier through the same lens that we were viewing other women who passed as men. Uh, we presumed that Jenny Hodgers became Albert because he was alone in a new country and was an illiterate immigrant and would have far better economic opportunities if he was male. Mm-hmm. And that's how we viewed Albert Cashier. But now that I personally understand more about transgender people and which is something I was completely ignorant of 20 years ago, I have often wondered if Lauren and I got Albert's story correct. You know, we we thought that after the war, now that Albert has the um, the honors bestowed upon Union veterans, there was no going back to a female identity. Mm-hmm. That's how we viewed the life story of Albert Cashier. Now I'm not so sure. You know, now I think that it is entirely possible that that Albert Cashier was transgender. We we won't ever really know. I, the transgender community has made a very strong argument uh, that Albert Cashier was a transgender soldier, and I I think they they may well be right. And, and so when when I look back on what we we wrote about Cashier in our book, I mean I think we told his story faithfully. But we didn't, I'm not sure now 
that we should even consider Albert Cashier a woman soldier. That's a fascinating example, I think, of how uh, what makes history continuing to be worth doing. Uh, you know, you occasionally, I'm sure, run into the person who says, you know, history, you know, don't we already know everything? Uh, what, what doesn't change? Uh, and of course, it changes <laughs> right. all the time because our lenses change. Uh, the, mm-hmm. And we see things through new perspectives and new knowledge and new ideas, and uh, and we have to reinterpret how we think of the past. and And that's a fascinating example of of, of an individual where that's the case. Um, we have just a few minutes left, and I, I often ask guests this question, and I cannot resist doing it with you. The uh, uh, if you could take a trip on the Civil War talk radio time machine and go back uh, to the past for 30 minutes only, uh, in complete safety, talk to one person and come back again, who would you like to visit of, uh, for 30 minutes in the past? Who would oh, you most wow. like to visit? <laughs> wow. Wow. I can only pick one. It's a tough, it's not, it's not a very <laughs> good machine. It doesn't work very well, but... Uh, it only allows us to transport you back to one one individual and have a chat. Just one. Oh wow! Who would I pick? You know, there's so. It would certainly have to be one of the women that we wrote about because mm-hmm. I would want, you know, from a pers- from a from a selfish point of view, I'd want to know if I got if I got it right, if I got the story <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Um. Who would it be? I think it would be... Wow, this is hard. Um, (laughs) I think it would probably be Sarah Edmonds. She was born in Canada had to escape a an arranged marriage. Her father was going to marry her off to someone she absolutely didn't care for. And she ran away from home by dressing as a boy. You know, she stole her brother's clothes and cut off her hair because she was so, she thought that was the only way she'd be able to escape her father. And she made her way to Michigan and, 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 and assumed the name um, Frank, and she ended up enlisting in the Union Army and served. And then after the war, she she wrote her memoir. She's one of the few women soldiers who who publicized what they had done. And then got married, had children, uh, fought. Uh, the War Department to get her pension as a woman, so she had, yeah, I, you know, she I, had to prove that. The, I, I yeah, apologize for breaking I in, but I, what a great story! People are going to have to read the book. Uh, they fought like <laughs> demons to find out more about Sarah Edmonds. We're alas at the end of our time. The time machine doesn't stop time on the show, and they're going to run the next show in a minute. <laughs> so we've got to say uh, to put an end to it. But uh, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Well, thank you so much for having me. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.